Hello, everybody. Welcome to your very favorite Bronze Age comic book podcast, Flea Market Fantasy. I'm your co-host, Michael, and as always, I'm joined by... Michael Dell of the LCS Hockey Radio Show. That's right. And uh, this week, it is my pick. We're going to be doing... Uh, well, keep it a surprise, but why don't you introduce <laughs> our uh, special guest this week? Well, he, he's back once again, two weeks in a row. Last week, I gave him a real nice introduction. Uh, screw that. This week, it's Miles Watson, everybody. <laughs> Woo! Yes, the placeholder and warm body has returned. <laughs> yes, two weeks in a row. Man. You guys are going to be really bad. Yeah, very impressive. <laughs> well, the reason we asked you back, Miles, was because Mike L, uh made a very, uh, I was going to say unusual, but uh, an interesting pick that is close to your heart. But uh, Mike L, why don't you tell the kids what we're going to be reviewing today? Sure, this is probably the first comic book series that I ever collected. This is G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, and this is number three. Yeah, from 1982. Right. I mean, I probably started a little bit later, but this was always one of my favorite issues. So that's why I picked it. I was looking at the covers uh, last night, and I think I started with, like, issue 16. Okay. Something like that. And uh, But Miles Watson, you love the G.I. Joe. And when we said uh, we were going to do issue three, you, you have this issue, right? I do. As a matter of fact, in my closet, I have issues 2 through 14 or 16. I always get that fuzzy. Um, I bought... I, I missed, because that's just the way I, I roll, I happened to miss the week. You know, every week, I religiously went to the... Pe I think it was the People's Drugstore in this Little Falls Mall in Bethesda, Maryland, during the 1970s, right? And I get... What was, when was the debut of this issue? 1982. 82, yeah. 82, Okay. So late 70s, early 80s, I never missed a trick. I would go down sometimes a couple times a week because you know how it is when you're a kid, you think you can force events. Right. You know, by like, <laughs> well, I checked the newsstand yesterday for new comics. So if I go again today, mm -hmm. even though I bought all the new ones yesterday, it w you know, that yeah. was my lot. So I would constantly, constantly check. And sometimes I'd just walk all the way over there and I would look. And I caught G.I. Joe number two, and I was hooked, so I bought, like, the next, you know, for the next year or two, for as long as I was buying comics, I pretty much bought every single one. I, I got the next two through 14, and then probably the next 10, I got the next eight, you know, eight out of 10. But like a chump, I missed the one that's now worth 500 bucks. So <laughs> there you have it. Yeah. Uh, I think I had, uh, like, roughly 16 to, like, probably close to 50 or so, but I don't have any of them anymore. I must have sold them at some point. Um, yeah, I don't have a single G.I. Joe issue now. I think I've got every issue from number 2 to 100, if not beyond. Wow. Um, for some reason, yeah, we were talking about this last week, but I could just never track down an affordable copy of number 1, so I never got it. But I do have the first 12 or so reprinted in Tales of G.I. Joe, so I've got, I've still got it at copies. Oh, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, the yeah. title was published from 1982 to 1994, and that was a span of 155 issues. Uh, the toy line ran from that same time, and it produced over 500 figures and 250 vehicles and playsets. How about that? And I had most of them. <laughs> yeah, and uh, at the time, most toy tie-in books only oh. lasted two two years, and here we go. This one lasted 12. Yeah, so it was quite the success. Uh, here's a trivia question for you. Since neither of you guys have issue one, uh, in issue one, it was revealed what the team's official name was. 
Does anyone know the official name of the G.I. Joe team? Oh, wow. No. Yeah. I have no idea. I, it, uh, I have no idea either. What is it? Special Counter-Terrorist Unit Delta. I think I remember that now, yeah, now that you mention it. I, <laughs> yeah, no, no, you, you know, but you know what's funny? Is I think that the partial inspiration for the G.I. Joe team is the actual Delta Force from the U.S. military, right? Like, isn't there a uh, real Delta perhaps. Force? I think yeah. So. yeah, there's a real Delta Force. For sure, yeah. there's a real Delta Force. Yeah. That's, yeah, the, wa- that's the agency of the U.S. Army that's so secret that, like, if you know anything for your Canadian audience here, yeah. you guys have the forces, <laughs> the forces, which I love that. Uh, in in America, we have, you know, like the scrolls on the arm, you know, like Airborne, Ranger, Special Forces. The Delta Force does not have one of those. That's how secret they are. Like, nice. they have a pat, but it just says, like, Special Forces on it. That's it. They don't even have a thing that says Delta Force. So they're not, for a long time, they were sort of, yeah, we don't really talk about that. But it's a little higher radar now, but not, not like the SEALs who, you know, you, you join the SEALs and you get a book deal. Um. <laughs> now, Miles Watson, uh, you love uh, Army stuff. Uh, in fact, your most recent book, Sinner's Cross, novel of World War II, available at Amazon.com right now, 19books.com. So you, you're like, uh, you know all your military stuff. So did G.I. Joe like start that love for the military when you were a kid? No, 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 no. I think I just loved G.I. Joe because it was a comic that was military-oriented. There were toys. There was also a really cool cartoon miniseries um, mm-hmm. that was very, very good. At least I thought it was good. You know, I was like 10. But, but yeah. uh, it tied into my pre-existing love of that kind of thing because I loved comic books. But the idea of doing, you know, I'd already, I was already a big fan of like Sergeant Rock and those kind of um, like Haunted Tank, those comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think G.I. Joe was just like another entry into that, but it was contemporary. It wasn't World War II. It wasn't, you know, like old school era stuff. It was something that was kind of contemporary that was, that was sort of making use of, I guess, you know, the cutting edge of 1982 technology. <laughs> um, yeah. That sort of thing. So it was modern military, like fantasy modern military, idealized, I guess. And, and you, mentioned the, you mentioned the animated series, of course, that was huge when we were kids. And it, the original run was from 83 to 86, and it had 96 episodes. And then I think they came back later for a second run from like 89 to 92. Um, yeah, I never version. saw the second run. I saw like a clip of it. Um, but I just remember the original. And I remember the original uh, series going on, just like it was like a first season or a miniseries or something. And I had a fit when I realized the last episode had come, because I thought it was like a permanent show. And I guess <laughs> it either wasn't a permanent show or it was just the first season. And I actually had my mom, I was like 10, I had my mom call the station. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. She, she called the station to discover, uh, you know, yeah. when it was coming back on. I was like throwing a fit. It was, uh, it was, in retrospect, funny at the time. I'm sure she sort of wished that my dad had a vasectomy, but that's, that's another subject. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Uh, Mike L., up yeah. in Canada, are you buying the G.I. Joe toys and everything? Oh, 100%. Um, like, I, I remember the first thing I saw was the cartoon. I believe it, it actually premiered on, like, a Friday night. I seem to remember watching, like, the, mini, the first miniseries. I think it ran as, like, a two-hour movie first, and then they split it up, but I could be wrong about that. 
But I remember I was obsessed with that first one. And then, yeah, after that, I got the toys. And then eventually there was a second miniseries. And then there was the daily, you know, every day after school, I think at 4 or 4.30 was G.I. Joe. I think it was after Transformers. But I, I watched every episode and, yeah, I was obsessed with the whole thing. And, you know, it's really funny. Mo many people don't know this. We, we had all the toys in Canada, but the, but the like, I don't want to call them secret identities, but the real names of all the characters... Uh, I, I don't remember if the, the names changed, but the, the hometowns all changed. So they were all from Canada. They, they were all from Canada. In fact, I should have dug out my file cards. Yeah, because I'm like, I remember like you'd see like the show, and they're all from the U.S. And then you'd have I'd have like a random figure. I'd be like, oh, Airborne is from Montreal. That's weird. Scarlet <laughs> is from Ontario. You know? Yeah, they would just they what? just changed all the yeah they changed all the hometowns for Canada. The, the, the title That's of the great. show is really G.I. Joe, a real American hero. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but they, they changed it to North American hero. <laughs> yeah. No, I wish, I, you know, it's funny. I have all my file cards. I should have dug them out, but yeah. Because I, yeah. I was just about to ask you if there was ever a Canadian G.I. Joe character, like a guy who came over to work with them or something, but no, they just made them all Canadian. Right. <laughs> oh, that's weird. Yeah, very weird. I feel culturally appropriated. Appropriate. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Yep. We did it first. Uh, well, Hasbro created the toy line, and of course, there was a G.I. Joe in the 60s and 70s, but it was like a one guy. It was like right. a 10-inch doll guy, and uh, he fell out of favor. So, But then Hasbro noticed that Kenner was having a lot of success with the Star Wars figures, so they wanted to relaunch G.I. Joe as a uh, three and three-fourths inch figure like Star Wars. So uh, Hasbro CEO Stephen Hassenfeld and Marvel Comics President Jim Galton uh, met accidentally or, you know, serendipitously at a fundraiser. And they started chatting about the project. And Galton said, hey, well, why don't you have Marvel? We'll be your creative consultant. So they started working on this together. So, like, the toy line and the comic book kind of came together at the same time. Like, mm -hmm. they, they kind of worked off each other and inspired each other. Uh, Larry Hama was an editor at Marvel, and he had been working on a concept called Fury Force, which was a futuristic military force branching off from S.H.I.E.L.D. And no one else at Marvel wanted to write the uh, G.I. Joe book because it's a toy tie-in, you know, no one wanted to do those. But Jim Shooter got uh, Larry Hama to do it, and he had military experience, so he, he, you know, he thought it was a good opportunity, so he jumped on it. And he said at the time he was desperate to just write anything, so... If it was a Barbie tie-in, he would have wrote it. But um, Archie Goodwin pitched the idea of Cobra Command being the villains of G.I. Joe. Because up to that point, Hasbro didn't want to make villain toys. Mm. They thought, you know, no one would buy them. And they didn't even want to have G.I. Joe have a villain. They just wanted, you know, to make the army toys. So uh, Man, Archie the Goodwin's... The toys were the coolest stuff. I know. And so that's Archie Goodwin who had that idea. Yeah, because let's think, okay, why you mentioned the coolest stuff, Miles, who was the coolest G.I. Joe character? You mean like on the G.I. Joe team or in the universe? In the universe, good or bad. Who was your favorite G.I. Joe character? I liked, hmm, that's a tough one. I liked uh, the designs, the actual character. I, I, I thought Destro was pretty cool. Oh, yeah, Destro um, was cool. Destro was pretty cool. Uh, I remember the the tank drivers 
of the the Cobra tanks were awesome. I think I still have one at my mom's oh, yeah. house, like in the attic. Those, I believe they the were called Hiss. Yes. They yeah, Hiss, Hiss tanks. tanks. Thank you. They had a they had like a red driver, and he looked super cool. But I the the two I really loved Storm Shadow. Storm Shadow was my yeah. favorite character. Um, the white, you know, kind of the opposite yep. of Snake Eyes, polar opposite. I thought that was badass uh, to have like that, you know. The fact, and they were, I thought it was very bold for them at that time to put the, the hero in black, Snake right. Eyes, and the villain, Storm Shadow, in white. I thought that was a really nice touch mm-hmm. playing on, never, on the cliche. Never really thought of that. Yeah, the coolest guy, Snake Eyes. Mm-hmm. You don't need to beat around the bush there, Miles. It's Snake Eyes is the coolest. Um, and then I, I think Storm Shadow is cool too. Mike L., did you uh, have a favorite? Well, yeah, Snake Eyes, absolutely. Like, especially Obviously. in the. Yeah. In the comics, Snake Eyes was probably the star, right? In the TV show, he didn't have as much airtime because obviously he didn't talk. But I think everybody always thought he was the coolest toy as well, right? Now, now Mike L., did you like his original outfit or uh, the updated version with, like, the visor and everything? I, I don't know. I think when I was a kid, I kind of preferred the second version. But now looking yeah. back, I kind of like the original better, you know? Yeah, Something I hear you. Like, yeah. yeah. When, they, when we were kids, though, and they updated, it was like, holy hell, this is so cool. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think part of the reason I like Snake Eyes so much is he's kind of, he just reminded me of uh, Spider-Man in like a black outfit at the time. <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? Yep. <laughs> like he had the mask, so it's like, oh, I like Spider-Man. Um, now, Miles, you mentioned you like the tanks. Mike L., did you have a favorite vehicle or anything? Uh, you know, it's funny because I actually did a segment on the show where we went through all the toys, and I remember suggesting that the U.S. military should be using the Hiss tanks because they're such a freaking cool design. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say the Hiss tank, especially with that canopy in the front. Oh, that was so cool, eh? Yeah, that's probably not the safest way to yeah, design a tank. Yeah, probably right. A glass canopy uh, right in the front. But, yeah, yeah that was, whatever. That was one of my favorites. I also like the, remember the, what were they called? The the pogos or the pods? They were those little, yeah. little globes that they bounced around. Yep. were freaking cool. <laughs> little jet packs with the globes yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I probably like the Rattler, the the blue uh, plane that Cobra had. Remember that one, Miles, with the uh, Gatling gun in the front and the nothing. Nobody. What what vehicle was it? It was a uh, Cobra plane. Oh, Uh, yeah. Was was it red? Dark dark blue. Dark blue. Okay. Yeah. It was like a uh, it was like a vertical takeoff and landing type thing, right? Nope. Nope. No. Yeah. You know. You know what that looks like. Is that's an exact knockoff of the A10 or no? Yeah, the the Thunderbolt, the uh, yeah. There's a real yeah, like, American aircraft. Yeah, yeah it looks like a, a real a real plane from like the World War II era. Yeah, but it is. It's a vertical takeoff. It, the 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 wings fl- uh, flip up and really? it, yeah, it can go vertical. In fact, I'm looking at the toy right now and it can do it. Huh? Yeah. I don't remember that. Uh, I also like the, uh, remember they had that, like, uh, I think they call it the hydrofoil. Uh, yeah, the hydrofoil. that was so cool. That uh, was red, like a big and then, boat. And, and remember the, I don't know if you guys remember this, but they had, was, a, had a number of things that were mail order only. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there was, were you going to say, there was, uh, it, I think Cobra Commander, the hooded Cobra Commander, I think you could only yep. get him by mail at first. Same with, like, Sergeant Slaughter and Refrigerator Perry, right? Right, right. <laughs> forgot about that. Oh, and the G.I. Joe Hovercraft. That was awesome, too. Right. Yeah. All right. 
So, uh, getting back to the uh, history here with G.I. Joe and Hasbro, um, Hamma, uh, Larry Hamma collaborated with Hasbro. Oh, by the way, uh, Archie Goodwin, he came up with the idea for Cobra Command because he, he kind of based it on uh, Hydra and S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. It's like the same thing. All right, so Hamma collaborated with Hasbro to create all the, the various characters, and he kept track of all their personalities and details on the little file cards. <clears throat> Hence, Hasbro said, hey... That's a good idea. So they started putting the little file cards on the back of all the packaging with the characters' details. So cool. I, yeah, that was cool. Um, Marvel launched the book in June of 82 to help promote the toy line. And the stories featured the original 13 G.I. Joe team members and action figures. Mike L., can you name the 13 original G.I. Joe? I believe I can. Would you like me what? to try? <laughs> yes. Okay. I thought there would be no way you could do this. Okay, uh, Hawk, Snake Eyes. Yes, yes. Scarlet yes, yes. Breaker, yes, yes. Grunt, yep. Zap, yep. Grand Slam. Yep. Uh, okay, we're getting we're getting down to the wire here. Uh, oh, um, did I say Scarlet? Yes. No. Oh, Short Fuse. Short Fuse is correct. Uh, oh, Rock and Roll. Correct. Uh, did I say Clutch? Uh, I think so. No. No, All right. he didn't. <laughs> so he did three more, oh, three more. Stalker. Correct. Uh, oh, man. I think there's only two guys left. Yeah, two guys, but who are they? Oh, did I say Flash? Nope, so that's okay, one of them. Flash, yeah. and then one more. Jeez. And I never heard Start of this guy, but he's in this book that we're going to review. Yeah, that's the only reason I know it. Yeah, I never Start heard of him. No, no, no. I uh, already mentioned Breaker, didn't you, Michael? I oh, think it did, okay. yeah. 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 This guy starts with an S. Oh, man. Oh, I, okay, I already said stalker. Uh, yes. Mike, I know you love your American football. Think of my hometown Pittsburgh team. Oh, Steeler. <laughs> That's right, Steeler. <laughs> yeah, because he was the, he, was, he drove the, the tank, the Mobat. Yeah, it's Steeler EE, Steeler. Right, oh, okay. yes. Wow, I almost, so, oh. I needed a hint. That's embarrassing. I gotta tell you, Mike L, I am impressed for a Canadian boy to name all thirteen original GI Joes. I'm very impressed. Would you like me to name all my girlfriends? Because it's much lower than that. <laughs> I'm sure, there's much fewer. <laughs> but like, I didn't know. Uh, like, I didn't remember Steeler. I didn't remember Short Fuse. I didn't remember. I never heard of Grand Slam. Who the hell was Grand Slam? He was very cool because I believe he's the only figure in the first year that had two different uh variations he had he, he had one with red pads and one with silver pads like covering his chest and his arms and his legs okay I'm and then old. okay well if you remember in this comic flash is in the comic he's the one with the laser cannon yes so flash had the exact same pads or body as grand slam except they had two different heads <laughs> so I, I was kind of thinking about this the other day there's there's maybe only three or four heads, right? And they just sort of rotated them between <laughs> characters. So you'd figure with Grand Slam, instead of creating two separate characters with two different heads, they just used the same head, so they had to give them the same name, I guess. But yeah, he was the only one with two variations. And uh, I'm looking through... Oh, I should also mention that uh, Scarlet, when they released the Toy of Her, they didn't think anybody would buy uh, girl action figures, so they put her as part of like one of the... Um, uh, vehicles, right? Wasn't she, didn't she come with a plane or something? No, I think you're thinking of Cover Girl because she came with a tank. I think. Yeah. 
So Scarlet, they just sold individually? Yep. Well, how about that? Um, Cobra Commander and the Baroness were the first two featured villains in the comic book. Uh, the Baroness was the first character to appear in the comics before having a figure. Mm-hmm. How about that? Uh, Hasbro advertised the comic on TV, making it the first comic to ever be featured in a television commercial. And the way they... Th- this was some sort of a, a little loophole they used. Because at the time, you couldn't have more than... Like, if you're doing a toy commercial, you couldn't have more than, like, five seconds of animation or something. Because mm. the mm. advertising, they wanted to make sure that the, you were showing the actual product and you weren't trying to trick the kids, you know, with the fancy <laughs> animations. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So they got around it by advertising the comic book. And because they're advertising a comic book, they could use 30 seconds of animation. And that, in turn, would sell the toys. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I, uh, I want to make clear, that when me and my friends were kids, we thought that G.I. Joe was a cartoon with toys based on the cartoon. We didn't realize until we were older that the cartoon was just a 30-minute commercial, right? Yeah. That's As right. for all of them, He-Man, Transformers, all of them, they're really just commercials. I just didn't realize that. Uh, in, 1980, in 1983, <laughs> the series was selling nearly 158,000 copies a month. That's pretty good. Back, like, what's today, Micah? What's a good comic selling today? It's, well, it's, a, it's like 100,000 is the absolute ceiling. Back then, I think the biggest selling would have been like maybe 800,000 or something. Yeah, by 1985, that number rose to 331,000. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was one of Marvel's top books. And in 85, it was also the top subscription book. Yeah. I remember you used to get them in the mail. Yeah, I subscribed to it and they'd send them to you. Uh, the book was getting 1,200 pieces of fan mail a month, and Larry Hammer read them all. And he usually sent out 50 to 100 handwritten replies each week. It's amazing. Holy hell. Uh, G.I. Joe Yearbook spun off from the title, and it ran once a year from 85 to 88. And they also had another spinoff, G.I. Joe Special Missions, that started in 86, and it ran for 28 issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another interesting note, Michael. Todd McFarlane drew issue 61 of the series, the original G.I. Joe series, but Hammond thought the art wasn't good enough, so he, uh, he got um, Marshall Rogers to come in and do it instead. Right. And it seems about yeah, right. They, uh, he, I know he got fired and they ended up reprinting that lost issue years later, because I have that. Yeah. After he became a big star, they're like, oh, right. let's right. put out his early work. Sorry, there's your G.I. Joe background. Mm-hmm. Um, Miles, anything else you'd like to add about G.I. Joe history? <laughs> uh, I'm, no, I'm actually no expert on, on this aspect of it. I just, uh, I would like to say from a standpoint of my own personal history that reading this comic certainly brought back <laughs> memories of my brief obsession of several years with this entire concept. <laughs> yeah. How about that? Um, all right, so I guess it's the time to look at the book, Michael. Yes. Talk about the cover. So on the cover we've got, it just says G.I. Joe, Real American Hero. There's no title, there's no blurb, which is kind of unusual at the time, especially for Marvel, right? Yeah. Uh, it's just a big, giant robot uh, blasting away, shooting at these the G.I. Joe team. And we have, from left to right, we have Scarlet, and then I think that's Grunt. And then two kind of generic-looking guys. I can't really tell who they are. And then we have Stalker on the other side. And Grunt, or whoever's getting, he's kind of getting blasted by this thing, and that's pretty much it. And was this Al Milgram? Did he draw this? or? No, it, it's Bob Hall drew it, and Al Milgram inked it. 
Okay. And yeah. then uh, uh, 60 cents. So young Miles Watson had to save up his allowance to get to 60 cents. Yeah. To uh, buy the G.I. Joe. And then uh, the character box is just like a generic uh, army dude shooting a gun. Right. Or is that Grunt? He was kind it of might be Grunt. Dude. He's kind of the generic guy on the team, right? Yeah. So the, the book is, uh, as we mentioned, is written by Larry Hama, and it's drawn by Herb Trimp. And we'll talk about them later. Sure. Uh, and the book is called The Trojan Gambit. So what are we seeing here on the splash page, Michael? So G.I. Joe has just wrapped up a mission, and they are inside like a Cobra sort of headquarters, and we see flags up on the wall. And yeah. I don't think, I, don't, I definitely didn't notice this stuff when I was a kid, but it's all like propaganda, like peace through war, Cobra, and like all these flags yeah. are on the windows. So it's almost like a warehouse where they were doing like rallies or something. And um, they're dismantling this robot, and through the dialogue, Oh crap! I got sorry. That was my Facebook. Through the dialogue, we realized <laughs> that uh, that they've just defeated. They just went through a battle with Cobra, and you know now they're dismantling the robot, and they're going to dismantle the robot, and they're going to bring it back to their underground headquarters. And so we see them on this, you know, video thing. I'm a Bob with uh, I think that's General Flag, who at the time was the leader of the team. And uh, they're and this is another thing that was different from the show is that their headquarters was secret. So. By tr when they transport the robot into their headquarters, they have to disguise it in these mail trucks, which I thought was really cool. So then we cut over to Cobra, and we find out that Cobra actually has a trick up their sleeve, and they're purposely, they've purposely left that robot there so that the G.I. Joe team will take it to their headquarters and reveal its secret location, right? Yeah, so. they're pretty sneaky. Yeah. But, uh, hey, hey, Miles Watson, in this, these early pages here, um, you, you get some uh, military jargon. Like, uh, rock and roll must have pumped 200 rounds of uh, 762 NATO <laughs> into these circuit boards. That sucker's red line for the scrap heap clutch. That's some pretty good military lingo. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they throw that in there, and I, I also noticed, I couldn't help but notice that, uh, that this does actually seem to be a straight-up advertisement for, like, the United States Army. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> oh yeah, yep. that's true. Yeah, they're trying to trying to get the slang like into people's heads, kind of like Call of Duty. You know, they're brainwashing people, like yep. teaching them basic tactics, military jargon, all that kind of an innocuous way. <clears throat> <laughs> so they go to their secret uh, base here, Fort Fort Wadsworth, I think, yeah. is the military place. It, it's, but but, yeah. but the GI Joe secret headquarters is underneath the motor pool. Right, it's the chaplain's assistant school in Fort Wadsworth. Yeah, their headquarters is underneath. So they drive these mail trucks into this garage or whatever it is, and then they are lowered into this. Oh, I love this! They're lowered into the headquarters, and this is like a classic trope going back to the '60s. But Alan Moore even did it in Watchmen, where you see the layout of the headquarters, and the the mail truck is descending through the headquarters as they're talking about it, and we get a little bit of exposition here where the one character doesn't know why is you know the, the living quarters why they're on the bottom floor and then the other character explains exactly why it's because well if it was a nuclear blast then the, then the blast would affect the first level the second level blah 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 but it's a great way to explain right and we get to see all the vehicles the little training uh center and the living quarters and you know it's just a great way to find out the layout which also of course comes into play in, in, in the story later 
Well, let me ask Which, you this. And it, it, to interject, if I, if I may, the, the, I, I don't know who did this originally, uh, but I do know that in 1971, they used this exact type of sequence in the film Andromeda Strain. Really? <laughs> there you yeah. go. Very I read that wow. book when I was a kid. But it, it, let me uh, ask you this, though, Miles Watson. If there is a nuclear blast that will destroy the first few layers of this base, would it do you any good if you're on the bottom of it all? I mean, would you be able to get up well, anywhere? You want? I mean, you're trapped then, right? I, <laughs> I got a, I got a chuckle as a kid of thinking of this irradiated crater that was like that ended, you know, six or seven <laughs> feet above their heads, and because he's like the bottom two levels with living quarters, computers, generators, and life support systems can be sealed off, and the, and there's a favorable survival quotient. And he's like, does that mean we won't glow in the dark? And here's the funny thing, though, it's like at this point you're you're you've got a hundred feet of like irradiated rubble above you and yeah. i'm kind of wondering like about the oxygen system and also how the yeah. hell you would ever get out of being entombed but hey whatever yeah you're just buried alive now congratulations yeah. way to go All right. <laughs> hey you got scarlet so yeah that's true <laughs> All right, so. no wait she's on top she was incinerated oh, never mind <laughs> <laughs> you got grunt <laughs> have fun all right so, so mike l while the uh the fellas like uh Steeler and breaker and clutch and all those guys they're in the lower part of the the base they're trying to dissect this robot and figure out what's going on with it um at the top scarlet and hawk they're having like a, a tea party with a bunch yeah, of people right <laughs> social That's, tea yeah and, we should also we should also quickly mention in the comic in the first couple of years Duke was nowhere to be found right, like Hawk was the leader. It was so weird because Hawk was there was a toy of Hawk. He was the leader in the comic, and then they did the TV show, and they just decided to create a completely separate character, Duke. I don't know why they did that, but yeah. So this is Hawk, the leader. My my guess on that was because I've seen this happen before. Uh, even recently with like the name of the Sith planet in the star Wars movie, they called it Korriban and then they called it Korriband. And then in this film, they didn't want to pay the guy who came up with the name Korriban. So they mm-hmm. call it Exodol or, you know, I, I think a lot of that, some it, Hawk might've been something too hard for them to, to get a copyright on, or maybe they would have had to pay somebody, something like that. That was my guess. Could be. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so basically they're, you know, again, this is all in secret. No one knows the G.I. Joe team is down here. So they're, they've got to, like, keep up appearances. And so they're having, like, social tea and just having kind of guests over. So Hawk and Scarlet are chatting away with these people. And then there's a little bit of humor in this issue. And the first instance of that is one of the guests smelling bacon and eggs. And Hawk's like, what do you mean bacon and eggs? He's like, oh, well, I can smell the bacon and eggs frying in here. And, of course, we cut down to... Uh, five levels and, down in the pit, and Steeler is making bacon and eggs for who is it here? Oh no, no, sorry, Clutch is making bacon and eggs for Steeler and someone else. Yeah, and so that's where the smell is coming from. Yeah, I don't uh, know. Like, but just another interesting <laughs> point though: uh, the bacon and egg smell can get all the way up to the top floor, but radiation won't be able to get to the bottom. <laughs> right. If there's a <laughs> key point. Good point. Good point. <laughs> And then, uh, and then we cut. Yeah, we get a, We get yeah. a nice detail about Snake Eyes here, Mike L. Yes, I was gonna say, it's like again, like this is all great dialogue. You know, Flash. You know, why does Snake Eyes always volunteer to clean all the weapons himself? Real simple, Stalker. He doesn't want your weapon to jam if you're covering him. 
Yeah. Which, if, if you read the later issues, you, you Starker would know that because they're friends from Nam. But whatever, that's fine. <laughs> but, uh, but, but that's a nice detail about Snake Eyes. It shows you how hardcore and badass he is. You know? Exactly. And the other guys are just making breakfast, right? Just, you know, goofing around. Yeah, it's very cool. I love it. Simple characterization. So then we keep... And again, at this point, there's no Destro. There's no major blood. It's just Cobra Commander. Baroness is not seen in this issue. But we have a generic Cobra Soldier... Kind of, kind of just giving some exposition, you know, Cobra Commander, the chemical timer in the robot's right hand is due to activate itself in 30 seconds. So basically, they, Cobra has no way of seeing or knowing what's going on with this robot. This is all just going, hopefully, according to their plan. So yes. Yeah, it's so cool. Oh, we so, should mention, the reason they have this plan is because they don't know where the G.I. Joe base is. It's so right. secret, they don't know where it is. So they said if they capture this robot and take it back to its, uh, its base, then we can get it to uh, tell us where the secret headquarters is. But in order to do that... Uh, they, they know that it's going to be shielded in the base, so the robot has to escape the base. Right, right, right. And then signal Cobra. Yes. Oh, yeah. so, the, so even though the robot has been disassembled, and even though the Joe team, as far as they know, it's inactive, the hand turns itself on and kind of leaps <laughs> through the air and then crawls yes. along the floor, up the computer console, and then starts typing. This is amazing. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> it, it figures out, because Cobra Commander says... The central computer program for activating these blast doors must be of necessity be simple and follow a recognizable pattern. And when our robot hand discovers that pattern, I will scan the sensors to find all occupied sectors. Or it will, sorry, it will. And then it, it shows the armory and the canteen doors slamming shut. So Yeah, so it, it's trapping the, the G.I. Joe's right. uh, wherever they're at. Miles Watson, how'd you feel about the floating hand? It was like uh, the Adams family, you know? Yeah, that actually, as a kid, that was the very first thing uh, that came to mind is the, the floating hand. Uh, I remember being a little confused because the, they ran, you know, um, the, the, I believe they, didn't they run a chemical analysis on the robot? But maybe they were only I, looking for explosives. Yeah, I don't think, uh, they're just yeah. looking for explosives and trackers and transmitters and stuff, but yeah, not magic hands. <laughs> they were looking for magic mm -hmm. hands. They didn't. They didn't notice the twelve in the head. But hey, we'll come to that in a minute. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something else about the head too. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Michael, the 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 hand starts just reassembling the robot. Right. And I, I like. There's a panel of both hands working together to carry the head. That was that's pretty very good. Very cool. Very cool. Crawling yeah. on their fingertips, carrying the head. Uh, so then the oh, this this is great. So then the G.I. Joe guys, they're trying to like figure out how to get out of these doors. They're like, oh, it's probably just a computer mishap or something. But uh, they open up the one door, and you explain it, Michael. What's going on? Well, so there's, a, there's an arm bar and a counterweight that locks the blast door. And so, who is it? Steeler? Yeah, Steeler is like, well, all i got to do is lift it up, and then it'll open the door, and we can just jam a chair in there. And basically, no one thinks he can do it, but he does manage to do it. So it's 200 pounds of dead weight. He lifts it up. And he's Sorry, straining against it. He's straining against it really hard. But look at those bottom four panels on page nine here. It looks like he's making sweet, sweet love to the wall. Yeah. <laughs> but I also love how casual <laughs> uh, Breaker is with the chair. I just love like the difference in how much effort uh, Steeler is putting into it and how, how little effort Breaker is moving with that chair. I just thought it was funny. It, it just it reminds that, me of the old... Real stuff there. It reminds me of the old joke about the milking machine and the farmer, you know, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So then, I, so th- this is cool because now we cut over to the other guys that have been locked up, and it's Snake Eyes, Stalker, and Flash. And so they're going to take a different route, and uh, basically, Flash decides, well, the best way to get out of this is for me to just turn on this laser gun on low power and just melt the lock, right? Well, yeah, you got to go through the, the decision process, though. Like, he comes up with these other options, and then he says, well, that's totally unacceptable. And then yeah, he's like, well, if I put the laser gun on high power, we'll probably uh, <laughs> suffocate and burn out our oxygen. Equally unacceptable. <laughs> then he goes to a third yeah, option. It's supposed to be really methodical, I think, you know? But yeah, yeah very cool. Our only chance is the laser rifle on low power, concentrating on the lock mechanism. And I also love how Stalker says, okay, well, we're going to, me and Snake Eyes are going to take a nap just to save oxygen. I think that was so yeah. cool, you know? And they just to fall asleep immediately. Yeah, I know. That's so great. Well, if you look at, if you look at the po- body posture of Snake Eyes, you can see that he's like in some kind of almost like a ninja trance, you know, like the way his body is, like he's lying on the bed clearly kind of like use some sort of self-hypnosis to go into like a low oxygen state. Whereas the other guys is like, Oh yeah, you're right. Like, you're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he fell asleep playing video games. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so then, yeah. So then, um, so then the, the first three uh, guys have now they're making their way. Is it down? Yeah. They're going down and they make their way to the computer room. And then of course well, the door opens well, up. They, the they, they think something might be up with the robot. They're like, maybe right, the robot's right. responsible for this. So they go running down to the computer room where the robot is, and the door's open, and the robot comes busting through, shooting lasers out of its eyes and hands. Look out. Right, so they're ducking out of the way, and then, uh, and then what's his name? I, it's so hard to keep track of this guy because yes. they're all green, you know, but <laughs> I believe it's Clutch. He goes into the bathroom, and he's got a, a trick up his sleeve, and then we cut back over to Flash, and it's it's cool because he comments that the air is getting bad, right? Because the laser is eating up the oxygen in the air, which I think is yeah. cool. And then the uh, so then the robot is coming up the stairs, and then the first group they've used the aftershave to make like this is basically like like a uh, like a sort of uh, what is this like an insect? Uh, yeah, or whatever it is. Yeah, they're using it as a as a device to start a fire. What do you call that? An inc- inc- how do you pronounce that? Incendiary device. Yeah. Yeah, so they just douse them with the alcohol shaving cream or shaving cream or aftershave or whatever, and then they set the robot on fire. So now not only do you have a rampaging robot, you have a rampaging robot on fire. Right, right. Um, And then then we cut back to Cobra, and, you know, Cobra's still waiting. And then we cut back to Hawk and Scarlet, and then one of the guests at the tea thing is like, very strange, a little while ago I smelled bacon and eggs, and now I seem to smell an electrical fire. And as usual, Scarlet and Hawk have to kind of just, oh, it's nothing, don't worry, it's just your imagination type of thing, right? Then we cut over to the robot, still on fire, climbing up the stairs. Uh, the robot, or so, sorry, then the robot sort of disappears, they don't know where it went, so they go into the room, the training room where the pool is, and this is kind of weird, I don't know why they can't see through water since water is transparent, but they don't know where the robot is, then all of a sudden it comes out of the water, and we get a, we, we get a moment of bad exposition, look! It submerges itself in the pool to put out the fire. You know, other than that, other than that, there's not really any bad dialogue. But that moment's pretty bad because they should have seen the robot, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, but anyway, so then they run away, and then they're all, and then the robot's coming after them. Then it tries to climb. They go up the stairs, but it tries to climb up after them by uh, using the cables on the elevator, which I thought was really cool. And then Clutch or whoever hits a button and then lowers the elevator on top of it to knock it down. 
and it but ends the, up. But the robot, the robot just climbs right through it. He smashes right through it, and then they come up with another great idea. <laughs> Miles, are you? How about how do you feel about this idea? They just grab a laser cannon and throw it down the elevator shaft at him. I, seems... I was cringing at the time because I was thinking like. How many millions of dollars? Yes. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> it's also a great Down way to sell it. Right, right. Yeah, they, they needed to introduce the laser cannon so you could buy it. So you could buy it and at home throw it down elevator shafts mm-hmm. for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, Never I don't, having I don't, yeah, I don't think that's a really good plan that they tried, but the robot easily dodges it. And then uh, he goes marching in. Uh, <laughs> Mike out the bottom of the page. They show uh, the robot busting through, shooting through another door, and it looks like he's shooting his laser out of his penis. <laughs> yes, it does. Penis. Yes, it does. <laughs> That's then, interesting. There's all kinds of innuendos <laughs> here, eh? Yeah. But, but then they come up with... <laughs> I always notice robot penises shooting well, lasers. Now I can't unsee it. Thanks a lot, <laughs> I know. Because the perspective of the panel, it's from behind the robot... And he's standing like you're behind and beneath his legs. And then you just show the laser coming up between the middle of them. It's very awkward. All right. So then, Michael, the, the uh, clutch and breaker and those guys and Steeler, they have an idea to finally beat this robot. What do they do, Michael? Well, they splash silver paint on his face to, to uh, put the kibosh on his visual receptor. So now he's got to rely on radar. But they've spread out like aluminum foil all over the ground so the robot it thinks it's going to be walking on solid floor but it's not it's actually the open pit of the hydraulic lift well so the robot goes tumbling down through the well and smashes uh at the you know at the bottom of this thing at the bottom of their headquarters and then of course uh, it's awesome i was just gonna say so it's all over michael the robot's defeated or is it right so then we cut back up to the guests, and they're like, what was that sound? It sounded like a Mack truck, truck full of anvils going off a cliff. And then Hawk's <laughs> like, ah, it must be some sort of acoustical phenomenon, right? So they're just tra- covering their tracks here. It's really cool. And then now cutting back to Cobra, we find out that they're low on fuel. And so if they don't get a signal from this robot soon, they're going to have to go back, right? Because they've got all this, like, this armada of helicopters ready to attack G.I. Joe base, but they're getting low on fuel because it's been so long. I also like that the helicopters from underneath they look like cobras. Yeah, and that was yeah, it's cool. This was never a toy either, but that's a very cool design. You're right. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, so then we cut back, and again, like you said, the robot has been defeated, or has it? Because actually, it's got another trick up its sleeve. First, it sprouts tentacles and starts climbing up the wall, but then flash- no, tentacles from just the head. It's just just the head, the head. right? Yeah. So it's just the head climbing up the shaft. I don't know why. I don't know how I've got so far with up and stopping it, but whatever. So then Flash is like, no big deal. I'll just knock it back down. So he zaps it with his laser, and then it crashes. But then little tiny spiders come, come out of its head, which at first, I don't think they're, I think they think they're real spiders. But then uh, whoever this is, Short Fuse or someone, picks one up and is like, oh, it's a walking transmitter with a homing device. I don't know how he knows that much detail about it. But then he's like, but then the other guy uh, holds it up. And he's like, wait a minute. There are recesses for a dozen bugs in here. That leaves 11 of the little devils. So now they got to track down the other 11 robotic insects, right? And as or- Miles pointed out earlier, they did a scan for transmitters and stuff. They didn't find anything. Yet That's now true. we have 12 transmitters in the head of the robot. So. Plot hole, eh? Yeah, I guess. 
So yeah, so co- yeah, so back up to the comedy up above Cobra. You know, they got we got three minutes and then we got to go back. So meanwhile, the GI Joe team is tracking down these bugs, stomping them, shooting them, swatting them, and then they're like, "Oh, we got them all!" Oh no! But there's one, one we didn't get. Where is it? Oh, it's within inches of the surface grate to the motor pool. We'll never stop it in time. We've had it. Then we see one of the guests at the the social tea thing looking down at the grate, and he sees a what looks like a spider coming through the grate. It's a bug, it's an insect. But then Scarlet just uh, basically stomps it out. It all breaks yep. to pieces, and then it falls through the grate all the way back down to the bottom of the headquarters. Then at that exact moment, the Cobra soldier tells Cobra commander that they've run out of fuel, they've got to go back to base. And then we cut back over to the, the social tea party, and I love this moment, where the one guest is like, if I didn't know any better, I'd swear that I heard people cheering under that grate. Must be some more of that acoustical phenomenon the colonel mentioned earlier. And then, of course, it's just a little gag at the end where Hawk says to Scarlet, you know, Scarlet, I may have been pushing the Joes a bit too hard lately. I think I'm going to recommend them a little extra leave time. And Scarlet says, good idea, Hawk. Sound like they've been going buggy down there. Wah, wah, wah. (laughs) Buggy. Love it. (laughs) So, Miles Watson, what'd you think? G.I. Joe 3. Love it? You know, I, I have to say something first, which is that when I saw the cover, when you guys said last week that you had absolutely no guests that were credible and you were thinking of inviting me back, <laughs> that I, you said, uh, we're going to look at GI so Joe 3. So I punched it up on the computer and because I was too lazy to get up and look in the closet, which is 10 feet from where I'm sitting right now. <laughs> and I saw the cover and I said, I don't remember this issue. I'm like, How, I know I have. I'm like, did I not have this one either? So I read it and it blew my mind because I realized that I hadn't read this. It might be 20 years, 25 years or something. And yet it very quickly came back to me. Even the individual dialogue, like when the guy goes, it sounds like a truckload of anvils. Hit. <laughs> right. And I remember that because that's the, that's the way, as most people know, that's the way I actually talk in real life. <laughs> so, and maybe it influenced me. I don't know. But because uh, some of the comic book writing, you know, that I read early on did influence me. But reading this was amazing to me because not because of what I'd forgotten, but because as I read, I started to remember. So I would say, oh, my God, the next panel is going to be. And then I would turn the page and it would be there. So it was really fun. Like it was a really fun trip down memory lane to go back to this very early version of G.I. Joe. when you know, the first issues of any comic they're trying to find just like a tv show they're trying to find the spine what works and what doesn't and you know how to keep the drama going week to week especially in a universe that didn't you know that was marvel but didn't have superpowers or anything so it was very interesting in this episode to see something where it's it's not people against people it's not even strictly speaking people against a robot it's it's showing how the team reacts to this Mm -hmm. problem like they each have a set of problems that even the guys upstairs have a problem that they know something's going on, but they can't doing anything about it to do anything about it. So they're maintaining their cover. And then the one guys, they have to escape and the other, you know, it's like everybody's got to escape and then they've got to unite and fight the robot and kind of separately. And it, it was, it's a theme I've seen more, you know, like the Battlestar Galactica used it in one of their episodes uh, in the seventies, but it's a, it's an interesting theme of sort of like taking the man against man combat and turning it almost into a survival situation where they're not fighting the Cobras, they're fighting this robot and, and trying to prevent something from happening rather than, you know, prevent a battle from happening rather than fight a battle. It was interesting. 
interesting plot. Yeah, and the writer here, like we mentioned, is Larry Hama, and he was born 1949 in New York City. He attended the Manhattan High School of Art and Design, and he sold his first story to a fantasy film magazine called Castle of Frankenstein when he was 16 years old. Uh, after school, he joined the Army, and he served in Vietnam from 69 to 71, and he was a firearms and explosives ordnance expert. So, uh, I, I love how he's an expert. Uh, you know, he's like 20 years old, but he's an expert. <laughs> That's well, the way the military I mean, was back then. Yeah, you know? You're it was 17, you're an expert. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but that's how he gets all the uh, military lingo down because he was there. He was in the army. He knows what he's talking about. Um, his high school classmate was a fellow named Ralph Reese, who was an assistant artist to Wally Wood, famous uh, comic artist Wally Wood. So he helped him get a job working at Wood Studio, uh, helping uh, Wood with comic strips. And from there, he started comic book work at Neil Adams's studio after that. And he started at Marvel in 74 as a freelance artist. He did uh, Iron Fist stories for Marvel Premiere in 1974. He drew those. Then he worked as an editor at DC in 77 and 78, working on Wonder Woman, Mr. Miracle, Super Friends, The Warlord, which I never heard of, and the comic adaptation of Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> nice. So that's pretty that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, he became an editor at Marvel in 1980. Uh, he wrote 148 of the 155 G.I. Joe issues. Uh, he drew four issues, including the uh, silent interlude, the classic one with no dialogue. He drew that one, yeah, which is interesting. Uh, he wrote about 83 issues of Wolverine over its run. And he also did a bunch of like uh, Venom series, like short series, like four-issue things and stuff. Uh, he also created Nth Man, the Ultimate Ninja, and he did issues 1 through 16 as a writer and a cover. Uh, also did the cover layouts. And during the 70s, for one year in the 70s, he worked as an actor, and he appeared on an episode of MASH and an episode of Saturday Night Live. How about that? Interesting. Larry Hamlin. Yeah. Well, MASH. Yeah, you love MASH, Miles. I, I oh, think the episode I he was on was called The Korean Surgeon. Yeah, he just had a minor... Just had a minor role on it. Uh, so there you go. That's Larry Hama. Mike L. Larry Hama is quite the writer, though, right? Like, he doesn't get the respect, I don't think. No, he, he doesn't. Uh, I, You know, it's like I loved this comic as a kid, and honestly, I think the more years go by, the more I like it. Um, I, I think the, the, the big difference is everything you said. First of all, he does have military experience, right? So that brings an element of realism to it. Uh, I've also met him. He's a, uh, I, I think he's a really cool guy. He's, you know, he's a straight shooter. Uh, and I think, it, you know, he brings that to the characters in the comic. And, and also there's like a few key things that he does as a writer that most people didn't do at the time. Uh, he doesn't use thought balloons. Uh, he didn't really use oh, a lot of, yeah, at, at all. Like maybe, yeah, maybe one issue he has thought, thought balloons, but he consciously did that. Uh, he uses almost no narration as far as I know. And so, really, sometimes when we're reading these old Bronze Age comics, there's sort of a trudge to get through, but I found this really brisk, you know, and I just, you know, I think that's the reason I've reread these so many times, because they're so easy to get through. And I, I do, I definitely think he's a good writer, and I think, you know, if you're, if you're a fan of 80s Marvel comics, I think everyone should read G.I. Joe. In fact, I just posted the cover on a Facebook group I'm in. And there's a couple of uh, really diehard Marvel fans that are like, oh, I never like, I never gave that book a chance because it's just a toy tie-in. But to me, if you know, if you're going to read X-Men and Spider-Man and all those other comics, you should at least give us a chance. 
you know, I, I definitely think it, it holds up with all those other yeah. comments today for sure. And a, another writing bit about Hama, Miles, you'll, you'll understand this part. He's a pantser. He said he, uh, which that means he writes by the seat of his pants. He mm. just uh, w- would start an issue and he would have no idea what it was going to be until he got to the end. And then he finished it. Like he didn't plan ahead. He just sat down and wrote them. So how about that? I like that. I like yeah. that. So, you know, whatever works. People always ask me what's the best way to, to write a story. And I say, whatever gets you to the end, God damn it. I mean, it's yeah. one size does but, not fit all for writers. Michael, in the, in the big writing world here, uh, there's usually two groups uh, people who outline stuff and then people who, who are pantsers. They just sure. write as they go. Yeah. And uh, I'm more of an, uh, a mix, I'm an outliner and a pantser. <laughs> so, <laughs> more of an outliner. Well, yeah, Miles. You, yeah. Do you outline Miles? Uh, yeah, I, I am basically, I think, similar to you. I, I do not do super detailed um, outlines. I do very rough kind of like, this is where I want the arc to go. And then sometimes yeah. if I'm feeling industrious or if the idea really needs the, the underpinning, I'll be like, okay, this chapter, this chapter, this chapter. Like, I try to get like a, okay, this is what happens here. This is what happens there. But like, the people that write, you know, five page outlines for each chapter and, and have note cards and do things on big boards and stuff. No, absolutely not. I don't have the discipline, the system, or even the need to do that kind of a thing. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't work for me. My mind is too disorganized. For, for a book, I like to have five big landmarks that I know I want to hit. And, you know, throughout the course of the book, I always have the ending in mind. And then, uh, for individual yeah. chapters, before I go to write the chapter, I'll, uh, I'll do an outline, but it's not super detailed, but I, I make sure I have the objective, the goal, the, you know, the obstacles, the goal and all that. Um, but like in between those landmarks, I'll just discover stuff, you know, so it, everything's not completely plotted, but I have yeah, a vague outline. Absolutely. I would, I would say yeah. that the, the, the best stuff that appears in any book, probably, and probably any comic book too, depending on how rigidly the process is done. I don't know how much freedom, you know, is involved with, with comics, Bronze Age or not. But the, the stuff you just improvise that comes to you in a flash or that is suggested by what you wrote, like you wrote a sort of two plus two and, and then you realize, oh, my God, this problem is solved. And look at this cool thing that I didn't realize I was going to do. And sometimes it'll change the whole course of the story. But like. I, I, I think too rigidly trying to control it would kill that, which would be a terrible loss to any storytelling, because all kinds of gold you'll you'll stumble it's almost like an old game of dungeons and dragons there's wandering monsters <laughs> and the wandering monsters in this case are good they're like leprechauns with sacks of dough <laughs> yeah so there you go that's the some writing insight for you uh the artist here is herb trimp herb trimp i uh, think he was trimpy but i could be wrong trimpy? i right. think so yeah herb trimpy uh, he was born in Peekskill, new york 1939, sadly, he passed away in 2015 at uh, the age of 75. He attended the New York School of Visual Arts and broke in at Dale Comics doing westerns. No relation, Dale Comics. Nothing to do with me. Uh, He spent four years in the Air Force from 62 to 66. He got a job in Marvel's production department after leaving the military, and he did freelance inking, and his first pencils were on Kid Colt, issue 134 and 35 in 1967. Mike Gale, tell us all about Kid Colt. I know nothing about Kid Cole. <laughs> <laughs> he right. was most famous for his run on Incredible Hulk. 
He drew 85 of 87 issues from uh, issue 106 to 193, a run of seven years from 1968 to 75. And uh, probably most famous for that run, uh, he was the first artist to draw Wolverine. Mm, that's uh, right. He was not cre- he's not one of the creators of Wolverine. That was uh, Roy Thomas, Len Wein, and John Romita Sr., but he's the first artist to draw Wolverine in comics. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, he drew six of the first eight issues of G.I. Joe, and he added three more over the run. He also, in 86, 87, he did G.I. Joe and the Transformers, issue one through four. And uh, from 86 to 89, he did issue, he did 26 of the first 28 issues of G.I. Joe's Special Missions. Mm-hmm. And he did a lot of G.I. Joe stuff. And he did a bunch of stuff. He also did uh, pretty good uh, work on Iron Man, and he, he was a, like a icon of right. <laughs> late 70s early 80s yeah. did a lot of stuff uh so what do you think of the art here michael herb trimpy oh i love it um really i think i do yeah like i think as a kid it was kind of i just thought it was unremarkable but as i yeah. got older i realized that you know it, it's not about how pretty it is like you know we just did mcfarland two weeks ago and mcfarland is the epitome of it's very flashy and it, there are there are things i like about it but Sometimes the storytelling is confusing. The anatomy is sloppy, right? Uh, whereas this is consistent all the way through. And the thing is, is there's, re- there's not one panel that you can look at and say, oh, this, this panel is like a pinup I'm going to put on my wall. But the yes. whole thing fits together perfectly and I think tells the story perfectly. And that's why I love it. Miles Watson? Are we talking art? Yes. Or everything? <laughs> Just the art. Uh, I like the art. Um, it's not. It's not as. I guess it's not as like razor sharp as some of the. I have certain idealized memories of certain comics, which have played me a little false, like the Batman uh, special. I remember that as being a little bit sharper and cleaner and crisper and less mistake prone than it was. Uh, this, I do like this art, and I think it fits nicely with the. Uh, I guess with I guess the the visual theme I'm not really sure my my terminology for describing this stuff is weak but I feel like it it definitely serves the story it doesn't mm-hmm. seem incongruous with the story that they're telling um, the robot I was a little disappointed I, I felt like the <laughs> robot was a little bit of a of like one of those practice robots that exists mm-hmm. on the shield um, helicarrier that mm-hmm. they just practice on and beat the shit out of that thing but. I always liked the aesthetic for Cobra, the uniforms, the weapons, all that stuff. And one thing I always admired about G.I. Joe was you have this squad, which eventually got really big, and they're all military, which the military is all about uniformity. Yeah. So <clears throat> they had to find a way of making the team look like individuals within the squad. And I think they do a pretty good job of that. Actually, I think a very good job of that. Well, like, but it's interesting here because, again, these are the first 13 characters. Most of them are wearing, like, kind of generic military outfits, green outfits and stuff. Snake Eyes and Scarlet would be, like, the two. And Stalkers was a little different. Mm -hmm. Um, Hit camo. But as the toy line progressed each, you know, subsequent year, the figures would be more, like, colorful and unique and had interesting outfits. Um I would say, like, uh, this art here, it's simple. and Simple to uh, word, yeah. Y- yeah, not in a bad way, but it's definitely, you get to feel like it's drawn for kids, I would say. I don't know, like, it's a kid toy book. 
yeah. by looking at the art. Yeah. But here, just... I, here's the thing, though. I, I would argue that it's like, I think Herb Trimp, it's, I looked it up, it's Trimp, you're right. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it's, uh, I think Stanley actually said to him, Herb, you know, you, your art is ugly, but I can tell a story. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at this art, it's like I said, it's like, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's, I think it's more just an older aesthetic of, of the idea that it, all it had to do was tell a story. And so maybe Herb Trimp was never the most popular artist. He probably wasn't a fan favorite, but it's more like he got the job done, you know? And as a kid, yeah. again, it's not like we were sitting there. I don't want to say that it was only good because we were kids, but I think a kid is looking more at the story as a, as a thing. They're not really, it's not like um, when you get a little bit older, you might admire Todd McFarlane or even like Alex Ross for how realistic it is. But as a kid, you're, it's just a story to you. So you wouldn't analyze it that much. I think the big complaint is for me is you're not getting the classic Marvel, like the dynamic poses, the mm -hmm. dramatic shots, camera angles, uh, action scenes. Like everything's pretty like, st like, like even the robot and the big fight scenes, obviously a robot's a robot, but uh, it wasn't very dramatic in any way. You know, it was just kind of there, like yeah. just uh. stiff and flat and, you know, simple, very mm -hmm. simple. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm not a huge fan. It's it's a it's a simple uh, it is a simple style yeah, and there's a yeah, certain like, amount of um, white space or what do they call it negative space in some of the uh, in some of the panels that was a little surprising to me um, a little spare, but and even uh, even I, just I, I don't the, hate it even like the page layouts the the paneling was very simple and that's fine you know but, but uh, and I do I do get the impression that this really was pitched to. Um, this issue maybe was pitched at a certain level. When I'm, I'm looking back through the first issue, the Amtrak and rolling through the woods and like the, the panels are very crowded and they're more Marvel-esque. Like there's a lot of people in them. They're busy mm -hmm. and there's a lot of color popping, like color really pops. And then they get attacked by these Cobra guys and, you know, wing suits or whatever, you know, jetpacks, whatever. But my point being that, the first issue has a very different aesthetic from the from the third issue. Mm -hmm. oh, all right. Yeah, I can. Uh, I, I was painting. Well, I don't I, know I if that was like, this kind of thing or just this issue is what I'm saying. I, I was flipping through a bunch of these earlier issues because um, I was going to pick a GI Joe issue too, Michael. But you beat me to it. But um, I noticed I wasn't a fan of the art early on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know. Well, you know who what's was, funny? Go who ahead. would probably be the most like well-known artist? That drew G.I. Joe, Michael. Well, was funny, there one guy? Uh, there's sort of three. One's Herb Trimp. One of them is a guy named Rod Wingham, which no one liked. He was really stiff and really boring. Yeah, and yeah then I didn't like his stuff. Yeah, I know. He's the worst. And then the third guy would be, <laughs> I think it was Ron Wagner. And he was definitely good, but n none of these guys are superstars, right? Like, I think the idea was that they just thought, you know what? Kids are going to buy it no matter what. So it doesn't yeah. matter who we get to draw it, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah and I, that's probably why Larry Hammond doesn't get the recognition because there wasn't an artist drawn fans to the book. Like, you know, it was never cool because there wasn't a star artist, you know? Right, right, right. Um, also, so. the page rates were lower. Uh, they actually, no matter how much it sold, they got paid less to do toy tie-ins. Oh, man. Yeah, so that's, what, that's another reason no one wants to do it. That stinks. Mm. Um so there you go, G.I. Joe issue three. Um, Miles, anything else you'd like to say about the issue? 
Uh, it's fun. I think, I think that the, the only problem I have with it in retrospect that, um, if you want to call it a problem is, is that there, there seems to be, a, I don't know if it's a note of constant humor or whatever throughout the story. It makes it very lighthearted. It makes the story move along fast, but with the exception of when he's kind of like burning through the door and the oxygen's going, there isn't a lot of dramatic tension in this episode because there's so much kind of low level humor, or maybe it's because these guys are all professionals and they don't get scared. So it's like, there's a little less excitability. I don't know. It's, it's sort of hard to put your finger on, but yeah, um, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't get a lot of dramatic tension off this and, and I do enjoy it. I, I really actually enjoy it. I think it's a pretty sophisticated story for this type of comic book as far as the, the way the plot works and this, you know, they, these guys don't have any ammo, so they've got to improvise. I like that. Um, that was actually a really interesting, uh, really interesting feature of the story. But I would like to point out the, the scene where the, the head starts crawling away and then they shoot it. it reminds me very much of John Carpenter's The Thing, which also came out in 1982. Hmm. How about that? Never saw it. <laughs> um, I, the other thing, Mike, yeah, we kind of mentioned earlier, uh, I couldn't tell who Breaker, Steeler, I couldn't tell any of them apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I like, mean, yeah, I've read this a thousand times and even I had to kind of double check, you know, like <laughs> who had facial hair and who doesn't and who has a, a brown strap on the left and not the right or whatever. <laughs> yeah, they all kind yeah. of just blended together. I, I, I knew Snake Eyes. I could always uh-huh. tell Snake Eyes, but everyone else kind of blended together. So, but um, it's a nice little story. Um, nothing too amazing. <laughs> but uh, So, Miles, one out of ten, what would you give it? I think I'd give it like a I'd give it like a seven, seven and a half. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I I'll go it. seven as well. Yeah. I, I like the the writing. I like the Larry Hammond stuff. Um I wasn't a huge fan of the art, but uh it was a fun little little read, you know, whatever. Um Michael. Uh I'm gonna give it an eight. You love it. Um yeah, I mean this is probably my favorite eighties comic series, but I also know that there are better issues like Snake yeah. Eyes the Origin and the Silent Issue. So I'll save the higher ratings for that. But yeah, this is definitely an eight for me. Yeah, I actually went back and uh I read the Snake Eyes the Origin issue. Oh, it's a good one. That was pretty good, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can find out how he got his face fucked up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um I think those were issues twenty six and twenty seven, if I'm remembering correctly. I think so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like if 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 anyone is listening, anyone, and they wanna they wanna dive in, you can read G.I. Joe one to about ninety one and that's a really nice story that kind of it's an over, it's like an arc, you know, everything wraps up, everything connects together. And I don't know, that's like, that's like the Holy Grail for me, that run right there. <laughs> One to 91. I think it's <laughs> 91. Yeah. Right around there. Yep. The hell of a run. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's a long run. All right. So there it is. GI Joe number three uh, from 1982. So next week, Michael, it's my pick. Yes, it is. What's it going to be? We're getting weird here because uh, we're we're going to go to a book that I never heard of. Ooh! I just discovered it when I was looking. Through, I was looking for seventies Marvel titles. It's called The Human Fly. Oh <laughs> right, you mentioned this. Okay. The Human Fly, number one from nineteen seventy-seven. I believe it's written by Bill Mantlo and uh, drawn by Lee Elias. This is number and one. This is issue one. We're going to do number one because no one ever heard of this. Okay. <laughs> 
And also, Michael, uh, because in issue one, there's a guest appearance by one Mr. Spider-Man. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Now, I'm guessing you've never seen this Spider-Man. You're, you're Mr. Spider-Man. You do all that, but you've never read this Spider-Man appearance, huh? That's a good point. I have not. Yeah. No. The Human Fly. Miles Watson, did you ever hear of The Human Fly? I have not ever heard of it, no. <laughs> so you'll be, <laughs> you'll be uh, you know, tuning in, I'm sure, next week to hear all about The Human Fly. Yeah. That or I will uh, be hiding so that I can continue another 47 <laughs> years of complete ignorance about the human fly. <laughs> Apparently, I think this fella is like a stunt man, and they call him the human fly. But he's like just a dude. He's not really a superhero. So, And I think this series only lasted like 19 issues. Oh, like the human fly they, they have in The Simpsons. Okay, yeah. Oh, I didn't know they had a human fly in The Simpsons. Yeah. All right. Uh, just there a background go. gag. Hello, human fly over here. Oh, um, oh, all right. Yeah, I do remember that now. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. all right. So that's next week, the human fly number one, 1977. So th- once again, thank you, Miles Watson. And uh, everyone should go buy your novels, uh, Cage Life, Knuckle Down, Center's Cross, Amazon, 19books.com. Uh, and what's the author's website you have now, Miles? Uh, it has the startlingly imaginative title of MilesWatsonAuthor.com. <laughs> yeah, there it is. MilesWatsonAuthor.com. And uh, so we'll, uh, we won't bother you for a while because two in a row, that's exhausting, but we'll get you back on eventually. <laughs> yes, I, I am exhausted from the effort of reading an <laughs> online comic book. It was brutal, but I, I managed to survive. It is. All right, so uh, Michael, I guess that's it. That's right. So yeah, make sure to join us every week on Flea Market Fantasy. We are available on um, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Spotify. YouTube, Spotify, all under Comic Book Syndicate to make it as confusing as possible. We do a different Bronze Age comic every week until <laughs> next Tuesday. Disperse!